Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. I'm Abe. And this is Track Walking. Tonight we've got uh, Abe Schmucker, Abram Schmucker. And um, first question, Abe, straight off the top. Do you like fresh cake or cake that's been sitting around for a few days? Fresh cake for sure. <sighs> Not even close. Right. Like so much so that I wouldn't even consider eating old cake. All right. But are you, you're like a, a proper homemade eggs and butter type cake guy, right? Well, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like if I can make a homemade cake, my preference would be to make cake, not buy cake. Yeah. I mean, that's. Buy a box cake. Ew. Well, okay. Slow down here. <laughs> Slow <laughs> down here. I like homemade cake too. I'm just saying like for my, okay. So we made my son who just had his birthday last week. Um, we, I didn't make him anything. Becky made him a snickerdoodle cookie pie that was awesome. But yeah. then for like the, and that was like for the three of us to celebrate together. But then I got him like a store half sheet of cake for like his party with his friends and stuff like that. Okay, sure. That, Those two things have different purposes. That cake is best when it's been sitting around for a few days so that is my that is my opinion and i like it we i picked it up on friday it's now monday i think it's going to be really good in another day or two is that because you like it when the frosting firms up a little bit yes that is part of it yeah for sure so anyway we got that out of the way we're getting he got his hard-hitting topics first. Yeah, we're. No, he's got his very controversial food opinions that uh, they have been needing to come out lately. So. Only some of them, but as I was eating this cake, I'm like, it's finally starting to get good. So we hosted the uh, the Lichties yesterday for dinner, and yes. uh, I made beef stew from scratch, which turned out I would say pretty good. Uh, and I also made scratch dinner rolls, and those were really good. So. Um, that's that's the world I live in right now. Uh, for, for me, the extra effort, just put it in. I get it. I wish I had, I used to be into cooking. I used to like really like cooking in the process and like doing it. And since Becky has like so many dietary restrictions now, like we don't really eat the same things. So I don't so, like have anyone to cook for mm. and like, I'm not going to cook for myself. Like, so, it's uh, then, then you and I are opposite. Uh, I think some people would say, Oh, it's so nice that you cook food for your family and you host Thanksgiving and you do all these different things. Um, actually I would say it's the opposite. Uh, I am so unbelievably selfish that I would much prefer to just make it myself. That way I can ensure the quality of the meal is good. I get it. I'm good. I'm good with that. That's a, what's that? Uh, not Myers-Briggs. Enneagram. That's an Enneagram thing. Uh, oh, yeah. Self-preservation is, they've got like the nine types, but then like within each type, you can be a self-preservationist, a uh, social or a personal or something like that. I but wouldn't yeah. be surprised that we touch on that topic later. Mm. Stay tuned. And he's, he says he hasn't done research. <laughs> Come on. 
I mean, we're we're the couch podcast. You laid not whoa, whoa hold on. Not that pod <laughs> not that couch okay. We're not that couch podcast. We're <laughs> the like you laid no. Um I'm gonna move on. That <laughs> Abram. Yes. Let's talk about the first time I realized that you existed. And that is because you drove an Evo on the one lap of America. That was, uh, that was a really exciting time in my life for sure. What would you like to know? Six years ago? Uh, 2016. So yeah, yeah, six. Okay. Fun fact. I was there and I never saw you. <laughs> well, shoot. Um, um we were Were you doing CTSV wagon things at that point? No, that was the year that I, I co-drove the middle four days of the week with Tim in his mini. And so I missed the beginning and end and I just flew in. Like I literally flew in and drove around with Tim and then flew back out. And so my experience that year was really weird. Um so I was aware that Abram was there, but I think you were like struggling with lap puppy Evo things the entire time and you were way farther up the field. I have no idea. And I I would say <laughs> I am uh very proud of the result that we were able to to secure as a team. Um, but I do not think that our position on the overall leaderboard reflected at all how hard it was. <laughs> That's that could be said of almost any position. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Now, I think I need some more backstory because taking a fairly highly modified Evo on the one lap while not a unique thing is definitely an adult choice. Yeah. So um, why? So where do, you want to, where do you want to start? What was your first car? Oh, Jesus. Uh, my uh, in high school i worked uh for my family business and Which my was? uh my dad and uh mom owned a real estate and auction company so we would um parents would sell houses but also when uh old people died their estates would liquidate all of their assets right all their personal effects and things yeah. it's pretty typical um, we, my brother and I, or my brothers and I would, um, uh, like go through the homes and organize everything and then prepare everything for an auction, typically on a Saturday. And so, uh, as a consequence of running around and doing whatever, uh, my dad gave us the boys, uh, his old 1994 Ford Explorer, like of the, the kind of like original Jurassic Park era oh, Ford yeah. Explorers, and Box. they were awful. Uh, <laughs> that was my first car. Uh, after that, I had a um, a Saturn uh, twin cam, like SC two. Yeah. Or, uh, what what was the four door? That's not SC. The four door was it wasn't the SL two. SL SL two. Yeah, and yeah. that. Uh, that one was hot trash. Was that uh, the plastic, the plastic car? Yeah. Yes. Um, at that time, like no one in my family was mechanically inclined. And so at that time we, I didn't really know what the issue was, but I had like a, uh, what I now suspect was like it jumped timing or something. So it ran like horrible. 
Um, and I mean, it just like, it sounded like it didn't have mufflers. Like it was, it was just a, a horrible machine. And we, at the time, the Saturn dealer said that the valves were burned, um, and they like did an engine out service and then they did some more stuff and then the problem showed up again. And then, uh, my parents were like, this is bullshit. Uh, the kids are getting reliable vehicles. And so I was getting ready to finish high school and I, um, did the responsible thing. My brother got a pickup truck and I got a Honda civic. And so that's, that's where Hondas came from. And that was the beginning of the end. So I, I kind of imagine, like, you mentioned what your family did when you were growing up. That almost sounds like the families that run funeral homes on some level. Like, you're dealing with properties and values from people who are dead. Or, yeah, it wasn't always estates. Sometimes it would be people that are just moving uh, or, okay. or people who specialize in this kind of junk for lack of a better word, yeah. where if if you were changing addresses and you had 25 years worth of stuff and you needed to uh, downsize or, or whatever, uh, you would hire my parents' company and they would um, assess the value of items in your, in your personal effects. They would uh, put an advertisement together. Uh, they would run the sale um, at like a, um, I mean, it's, it's basically eBay except it's in person, sure. right? Like that's the idea. That's literally how I want to move from my current house in Texas. I want to take like two pairs of socks and my car and I want everything else to be gone. Nobody wants after, to assess how many mini bikes you have. Yeah. Like after Hurts. 20, we've been in this house for 22 years now and we have the, the detritus of 22 years of living in the same place. Yeah. And what you're describing sounds like my dream, which is I would love to just walk it away. Is, um, for a lot of people, it can be an attractive option because it, it is a resolution. It is a guaranteed resolution uh, on a finite day. So anything that's worth money will sell. Uh, and anything that does not sell is put onto the free pile or in the garbage. And so um, on that day, it's done. Yep. Unfortunately, and like I, I have a pile of garbage. That is my life. So <laughs> I already know that. <laughs> and the and the people who do that like you and your family like you guys don't have any emotional attachment to this stuff like you're not gonna hold on to something just because great uncle joe once crossed the potomac there might have it. been a period in my life where that was true but it's certainly not now um <laughs> and i can also say definitively on a on a value per pound basis, uh, from my experience, I have learned that old people's homes are filled with things that uh, are both very heavy and not of particular value. And uh, what tops the charts as the worst offenders, that is the things that are the most heavy uh, that will almost certainly not sell, Yes, are uh, like 1977 version World Book Encyclopedias. No one wants that. <laughs> Um, and Do you know how all, much they were at the time? Oh man, they were so much money. So expensive. Um, the the other one that's uh, completely useless or nearly is typewriters. Old people have typewriters. Yeah. So what's the uh, separate questions? What's the coolest thing you ever got to help sell? And separate question. What was the most valuable thing that you guys oh, ever got? Um, those are 
Good questions. The coolest thing, it is a thing that uh, 12-year-old me thought would be awesome to buy, but my dad wouldn't let me. We were selling a farm, and uh, the on the farm, there was a silo like there is at Blackhawk Farms, right? Mm-hmm. The silo was for sale, and it, it ended up selling for like $11, but the buyer had to move it. And I, I really, really wanted to buy this silo. My dad said no. So it's eleven I bucks. I know it was like, I mean, let's just buy it just so that we can say we have one. I mean, you could think it's of the think. I mean, you could put ladders up the side, fill it like with a ball pit, and just like jump into it. Exactly. Yeah, uh, nearly limitless possibilities. Yes, we oh. could reach new heights oh. in our ball. In the silo. God, that would have been awesome. Um, things of value. I mean, I really didn't pay attention that much. I mean, I was young, right? So sure. I worked, uh, I don't know, in I worked in that capacity with my dad from the time I was maybe 10 to 18 until I left for college. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I wasn't really, at that time, I wasn't really paying attention. Um, yeah. I can say that... Uh, between working for the family business and then also working gigs that are uh, the same, but for other people, um, I learned uh, about hard work and physical labor and how much I don't enjoy doing it. <laughs> um, so it's important. Anything else would be better than doing that. And so, so you that led you to higher education. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so like, um, my, so I'm, I'm not tooting my own horn, but, um, beep, beep. my parents, neither of them, uh, were college graduates. Neither of them were college attendees. And my dad, who was, um, like my, my primary guardian from pretty early on in my life, um, he didn't even go to high school. He grew up in an Amish family and left, uh, home at f- like 14 yeah. and he had like $0 in his bank account. And so, um, as a parent, his advice often was just like more school, more school, but, uh, beyond that, or, or the, let's call it the specifics of, of how to do that and how to excel and how to do whatever. Like, I, I don't want to say I was self-taught cause I'm in, I'm in college or learning in college or whatever, but like that path was completely foreign, foreign to anyone in my family. And so for me, it was kind of like figuring it out on my own. So the ethic of working was there, but like the mechanics and the the technology of actually how to do the hard work in this avenue with education yeah. was something that you had to apply on your own. Yep, very much. Okay. And um, often it felt like I was um, just kind of like trial and error you know, figure out what works and what doesn't and you screw up a bunch of times and eventually you'll figure it out. So high school, you got a Honda civic from a plastic Saturn. Yeah. It was a, was that like a light switch? Like all of a sudden, like I'm a hot boy now, or was it just um, Ashley and I started dating really uh, early in our lives. We started dating in uh, junior year of high school and uh, her dad did and still does call me Honda boy. So we, we've been together now for, I think, more of our life than we've been not together. And I was Honda boy then, and I'm still Honda boy. 
Yeah, you guys are like uh, mid thirties, young mid thirties something. I'm I'm thirty seven. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. Youngster. Oh, stepdads. I, I feel old. Stepdads. <laughs> um. Just wait. There's more. So where? So you go to undergrad, and do you know? You know, it's it's the one question you never should ask somebody who just graduated high school, like. So what are you going to go do? You know, what's your what's your major going to be? You know, the thing everybody oh. asks. Did you already know, like, did you have a trajectory or were you going just because you knew that you needed to go? Um, I So my uh, process for applying to college was, uh, like, fumbling about. Um, at the, the, quite literally, as much thought on I, as I put into it was, well, I'm from Indiana. Um, Indiana seems like a good school. I guess I'll go there. And sure. I applied and I got in and that was it. Um, I, there was no additional thought. There was no plan for anything. Uh, the backup plan for if I didn't get in, didn't exist. Yep. Okay. But when I got to college, I mean, like if you're a student and you're in high school and you're good at math and you're good at science, everyone just says you should be a doctor. You don't actually know if you want to be one. People just say that's what you should do. Yes. Um, it's a noble profession and it's uh, a good career, I think. And whatever people just say, yeah, that's what you should do. I feel like you, I've asked this to you before, but I don't remember where in Indiana did you grow up? Northern Indiana. So near the South Bend area, about 20, 30 minutes away. South or North? Uh, East. East. Okay. So between South Bend and Fort Wayne. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so that is certainly Amish country, for sure. In that range, I w- I was raised in Greencastle. I'm familiar with Greencastle. Oh yeah, it's yeah, what? it's the county seat. Uh, yeah, and that's about it. Um, so uh, when I went to college, um, I thought so. I I was going to major in chemistry. I thought I was going to be an anesthesiologist. Ooh. Uh, and I wanted to be an anesthesiologist because they made the most money. Yes, they do. That's, that's a good gig. And you get to yeah. put people under. I mean, that's a it's a feeling of power right there. Well, they don't talk to you. They're asleep. It's amazing. I started, um, I think I started my career as a biochemistry person, but um, quickly changed to just chemistry. I'm not really sure. I couldn't tell you exactly why that happened. Um, but I think it was in my sophomore year. Um, that I realized that all of the people uh, that I was around, I mean, Indiana's a really big school and there are plenty of pre-meds. Um, I realized that I didn't really like those people. Um, like as, as, as actual human beings, I didn't really care for them. And I, you don't want to stereotype an entire body of people, but there were a lot of common traits. And uh, I was just like, well, this isn't, that's not what I want to do. I don't know what I want to do, but it's not that. Um uh, <laughs> And so I started talking to some faculty members and they were like, you should go to grad school and you should do this and you should do this. And then that was kind of the path that I was on. Mm. Um, interesting that the, um, uh, some advice that I got from a professor in my sophomore year, I didn't really appreciate how, uh, astute the, the guidance was, um, but what he told me to do is in practice exactly what I did do, like to a T. Um, and if you had asked me if I thought this person was worth a damn, I would have told you no way. 
Um, but what he recommended is exactly what I did. Which now was? that might have been a coincidence, but it's a pretty interesting one, I think. Which was? Um, he told me that I needed to go to Northwestern and that I needed to study with this particular uh, faculty member, and that would be the path for me. Um, and it so happened that it worked out exactly that way. Interesting. Yeah, that can be annoying when somebody you don't really like or think highly of at the time is like, yeah, they really nailed that one, didn't they? Yeah. Mm. So you were just going to go off and be a chemist, make the most of yourself? Yeah. Um, I, at the time, I didn't really... Um, I didn't appreciate the like what the ramifications were for uh, becoming a like a professional scientist, a person who works in R and D. Um, there is, especially someone with a PhD, there is some complexity in lifestyle um, that you get that I think a lot of people wouldn't really know about in advance unless they had a family or a friend that was in that business, such as. If you have a PhD in chemistry, um, the general, if you want to work in research, the amount of geographic flexibility that you have in your home, your, your, the place where you call home is, uh, nearly zero. So if you said, uh, definitively that I want to live and I want to be a PhD chemist in Hastings, Nebraska, um, that's almost not an option because there aren't any companies that work in R and D in Hastings, Nebraska. You basically so have to go where the job is. You must go where the job is uh, if you want to do work in that field. And certainly that was something I didn't, I mean, it makes sense, but I wasn't thinking about it in advance. Sure. And also um, uh, once you have a PhD, you are not really eligible for lower level positions, uh, oh. managers for jobs that are looking for bachelor's people or master's people will not hire a PhD. They won't. Yeah. And so the, the job pool to which you can apply is smaller than the general applicant pool. So I'm no doctor, doctor, uh, but I do have a master's and I do remember specific times in my life where I just needed a job. And I 100% hid the fact that I went to grad school. Yeah. Because I knew for a fact that it would make me so unlikely to actually get any sure. job. Well, um, in some respect, though, I can say that even with my current employer, um, the background check that they apply to someone uh, for some of these positions is very rigorous. Um, and... Uh, they would have seen my academic record associated with, you know, my education, my experience, my whatever, as part of applying for this job. So there's no way that I could have. Uh, it would be very difficult to be fraudulent with your uh, application credentials, at least in the kind of work that that I do currently. I'm going to put my best Seth hat on here. This is all sounding very grown up, very professional even if it is in hindsight. But, Mr. Honda Boy, there's, I think you once called yourself a dirtbag. Dirtbag, yeah. Like, how are you still 
doing dirtbag things while you're sounding and doing very professional grown-up things. It's, like this, there, um, there's a really interesting dichotomy kind of running through here. Oh, it, you're you're absolutely right, and uh, I will uh, point to a very specific example. These they, they are separate lives, so to speak. Um, <laughs> you're just, ba- you're Batman. Just last week, I had uh, dinner with a professional mentor from work, and that person was aware that I. Uh, host a podcast slip angle podcast brought to you by track tune mm. he had listened to an episode of me recently where i was talking to adam about a specialty tool that i had purchased to install shelving in my basement yep. that specialty tool i will say looks an awful lot like a butt plug and it's called the nut boss and this person uh, just kind of like ribbed me a little bit for talking about something so unprofessional. Uh, why did you have to talk about butt plugs? And I was like, well, I mean, that's what it looked like. <laughs> I mean, have you ever seen one? <laughs> <laughs> so um, what I can also say is um, when I come straight to a grid life event from work, I'll typically have like a dress shirt on and my hair fixed and I'll have dress shoes on whatever. Um, and people will say, I look weird. Now, uh, on occasion, I will sometimes wear street clothes into work if we're doing like a volunteer activity, cleaning out trash or something outside. And uh, the last time we did one of those things, I had like my my flat brim uh, MS7 hat on that Pete gave to me. And uh, people like stopped what they were doing to ask me what was going on. Why was I dressed like that? And is everything okay? <laughs> yeah, basically they're like, what's with the hat? And I was like, well, th- th- this is just how I look. You just don't see that part of me at all. Right. Yeah. So everything's yeah, very yeah. manicured, very presented, proper. Even even if it's a mess inside. Oh, especially if it's a mess inside, the more curated it needs to be. I mean, your hair, I should say right now, looks very fancy. Well, you know what? I, uh, I've been playing under the blankets uh, of my my kid's bed because she she likes pretend play now, and she will uh, she her big thing right now is she yells the dinosaurs are coming, and then she wants to hide and she wants me to hide too. Yes, and the only safe place is under the blankets. Obviously, obviously. Well, and they're they're lions. The lions are coming too. Okay, sure. Yeah, you get it. Yeah, I been there. It. Yeah. So, um, what else do you want to know? So I want to. So when when we're talking about, I actually want to get into your driving history at some point. But how? So in my experience, most people with your background end up in places like the PCA rather than grid life. I don't have PCA money. Sorry, dude. No, but except it's not. It's not even a money thing. It's a peers thing. Um, because they're they're separated more less people think that it's all separated by money. It's actually way separated less by money and more by peer groups. Um, well, uh, maybe um, maybe I'm giving an impression that uh, I don't want to say hides, but like maybe doesn't properly reflect how I grew up. Um, and so like 
my academic background and my professional work experience and like all of those different things, those are, um, it's not how I grew up necessarily. It's just a consequence of the path that I've taken. Um, like you didn't ask me about my early childhood. That's where things were really messy. And, um, like my, my parents didn't have any money, like none. Um, and so, uh, the the people in grid life um there are plenty of very well to do people in grid life um but there are also plenty of people that don't have two nickels to rub together and because of that i mean there is there is some amount of equality and intermingling that i think is good for the soul it's interesting you remind me of my dad in that way he grew up, um, he was the first one in his family to ever go to college. He grew up from, you know, he he actually worked in the same factory as his dad did um, at the same wage when he was in high school. And uh, he became a veterinarian, so became a doctor, um, owned his own business. And he always said to me, he said, you can only rise so far in a generation. Yeah. Um, and, and he sort of looked at me and my kids and he goes, it's your job. Like if, if you're going to go farther, that's your job. I can only go, like, I can only handle going so far before the world feels really, really weird to me, regardless of, of my education and professional life. I think that that's, that's a really important point. Um, I'm very, very proud of my family and the, the life that was, that my dad was able to provide for himself and for me, um, but you're right. I mean, this this person uh, didn't graduate from high school. He doesn't have a GED. Um, he's been elected to some like professional uh, leadership boards in his life. Um, however, um, there's probably a ceiling, right? Like there are certain uh, positions or or roles that probably he just can't have um, because he doesn't fit a typical mold of like what a person in this this position might uh have in terms of experience or credentials so like he's probably never i mean this is an exact like this is an extreme example but he's probably never going to be president because like you expect the president to probably be a lawyer and they should probably have a degree and and probably 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 and like if you don't have those things that doesn't mean that you can't be successful it just means that some doors might not be open but even socially, um, like my through my wife's work in the oil industry, like I know a couple people who like own islands and you sit down, you stand around a party with guys who own islands and it's a different environment. And um, I'm able to fake my way. I feel like I'm able to fake my way through it in a way that my dad couldn't fake his way through it, even though his level of education is higher than mine. So I will think, or uh, maybe we can talk about something that I've thought about before. Um, let's, I, I was driving down the road um, and I saw a brand new, uh, let's say Bentley Bentayga or like Rolls Royce Cullinan on the road. This, these, where I used to live, those were more common to see because they were parts of Indianapolis that were really well to do. Um, those vehicles have an incredibly high purchase price and a guaranteed rate of depreciation that is astronomical. Yes. And 
I was in my head trying to picture myself in a position where I might, you know, buy one of these vehicles. If I had the means, uh, even if I had the means, how much money would I have to have before I was willing to accept a uh, 400% or excuse me, an 80% depreciation on a $500,000 asset in the first five years? Yeah. That sounds horrible. I mean, like, I don't think there's any amount of money that I could have where I would be okay with that. I feel the same way about the the big toters with stackers. I, I look at the, and they, those don't have the same level of depreciation, but I look at the assets wrapped up in that, even if you're just, you know, paying and, you know, there's, there's other ways to think about it. But I think what would my income and asset base have to be for me to be comfortable driving around $600,000 in race car transport? And there might be a scenario where I would be okay with that. But like the just the understood massive loss of your initial purchase, right? Like I I just don't understand. And it would be hard for me to, it would be hard for me to imagine any amount of money that I could make that that would be true. And maybe that's a difference. Whereas like, if you didn't grow up with much, um, I don't know, like, uh, I think my, my family, we certainly worked hard, but like my dad would probably just say, don't be stupid. Well, and that was going to kind of be my question. I mean, you, you said like when you guys were, when you were a kid, like that you guys didn't have very much, but here, like right towards the end of high school, your parents were able to get you and your brother a car, decently nice vehicles. I mean, Um, was that strange over the last, I mean, like, uh, during my life, things changed pretty dramatically in part because my dad was, uh, really, really good at his job and he worked really, really hard. And in some cases, worked working hard just meant like wasn't around. Um, but you like the the story. Um, the story is like um, I I don't know how much you talk politics on this show, but like this is a this is an American dream type story where you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you make something of yourself because of grit and hard work and whatever. And like that is true. Um, what he and I often fight about is. Um, he did those things and he was talented, right? Like if you are talented and you work hard, you'll probably be successful. Um, but if you're not, if you're not talented or you're not very good at things that make money, uh, it's going to be a harder time for people. So even with that dramatic swing, when you were kids still living with your parents and things like that, like, was there a moment of like arrival? Like I'm it it kind of seems to me of that like you know, you you grew up kind of having I mean having a car was even something, but then you go from like kind of crappy cars to a nice car. I is the only example I have from your life. Like was there a point of we have this or we're able to do these things? that kind of gave you some retrospective on how you were raised. I try to be thankful, um, especially Ashley and I, uh, we try very hard to be thankful for the life that we have. Um, 
at the same time, probably to a fault, uh, I would describe my, my character and personality as hungry. Um, where I do think that I am driven um, for a, probably a variety of reasons to always be on the hunt for more. And what, and what more is in this case, I'm not sure. Uh, Ashley and I have a, enough money to live. We don't tend to worry about paying our bills and we're very grateful for that. But like um, what, I, I do feel very strongly, and I think this was a, a, a trait that uh, my dad emphasized: was whatever it is that you do, be the best. Right? Like, if you want to drive a bread truck, that's fine, but be the best. Yeah, it's a very dad thing. And um, it, I, I don't think you can turn that off. I don't know how to turn it off. Um, and it's. It's, I don't want to say caused heartache or trouble, but like life's not been easy the last 15 years. Like when you're, when you're constantly on the move, both literally and figuratively, it can wear you down. Well, yeah. And I, I know and am aware of that mindset and it is very difficult to stop and enjoy what you have because you're constantly trying to perfect what you have or move to something better or there's this forward momentum yeah that is very difficult to like stop and enjoy like right now like playing under the sheets hiding from the dinosaurs yeah um i will say that in my current position and all of this is speculative right you never know um, my only obligation is to do as as well as I can in the job that I'm in. Um, and it's possible that another opportunity will present itself to me. Um, but what I can say is that this is the first time in my life professionally where I have had to think about in the hypothetical, if if a different job opportunity were given to me um, that required moving anywhere, from where I am today, uh, how much of a salary increase would it have to be for me to say yes? Because um, it's been, I mean, it's, it's like, it sucks to move. I've moved, um, let's see, since grad school, I think we've probably had like 12 or 13 addresses. How long is that? sucks um, what, what kind was of time period, period of time in the last year there was a period of time in the last year that in the 12 months prior i had had four addresses that was a weird circumstance but it was still the case um and so like if if i got a different job opportunity would i automatically say yes if it meant for a career growth and trajectory um today i i, I would have to say i'm not sure um, and that's probably the first time in my life where it wouldn't be just the definitive yes. So what changed? How much of I was going to ask how much of that is family and settling down, or is is any of it that? Uh, I mean, maybe. Um, like what I what I do know is I really really enjoyed my job. Uh, I have a lot of professional responsibility. Um, I have a management team that expects me to be really good at my job, which is the, I would say the first time I've like felt that, that amount of accountability. Um, 
And so like, I just, I kind of want to play it out and just see where it, where it goes. What I also know is, I mean, I, I'm in, I'm in a corporate job and uh, regardless of whether or not your circumstance is amazing, it's temporary because eventually the people you work with roll retire or change roles. And so um, personally, the, the driver that I feel at this point is um, how do I most control uh, my fate? I have no idea how to transition this back into cars at this point. Oh, I got one. Cause he was talking about being like sort of perfectionist, sort of hungry all the time. Ooh, and I okay. feel like that, that hungry thing, um, what I know about your Evo, um, like you built a very serious car. I want to know how you went from Honda boy to a, an Evo that was trying to eat you alive. Sure. Um, when Ashley and I got married just after college, uh, right before we started graduate school and, uh, we moved from Bloomington, Indiana, which is like a college town, but like parking's not scarce. Uh, you, you, people have their own car. That's not out of the ordinary. And when we moved to Chicago, this is a big city and Ashley and I, we're, we're from a small town. Ashley and I had never lived in a place like Chicago. And so uh, our first thought was, well, I guess we don't need two cars. And so uh, hers, she had a uh, an EK Civic, but it was an auto. Um, and my Civic was a manual. And we didn't figure that um, keeping the manual, even though it was newer, would be wise if we're moving to a new city and Ashley's trying to learn how to drive stick in a a weird area, whatever. So we, sure. we sold my civic and we kept hers. So we had one car and I bought a motorcycle. Ooh, what'd you buy? Tell me. I had an R six. I had a 2008 R six. Okay. That's a fairly serious motorcycle. A uh, very, very serious motorcycle. And I, I would say that, um, that mm, power sport part of me came from when I was growing up, Again, this was in high school. Um, my parents and my my brother and I uh, got more involved in doing like off-road, ATV, dirt bike, Jeep type stuff. And so well, when Ashley and I got married, this is actually a, um, what's the right word? A sappy story. Um, my, my parents said that the ATV was mine um, when I graduated from high school. And so when I graduated, uh, from college, I wasn't riding it. I didn't have a truck. I didn't have a trailer. So, you know, being a 21 year old in college, having an ATV is dumb. Right. Um, so I sold it and I bought an engagement ring. And, uh, so like, uh, I was like, well, if I like this kind of stuff, maybe I can have a motorcycle and that will, uh, scratch that itch. Um, and we can still have just the one car. And so, uh, in but, graduate school, hold on, hold on. There's, there's a wide gap between riding off road in like middle of nowhere, Indiana to owning a fairly serious bike in Chicago. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like you thought that was a usually, good idea. Usually that's just like a poor evaluation of your own life that leads people down that path. <laughs> yeah. I, so it was, uh, it was an unbelievable machine. Um, and I, anyone who might listen to your show, there is no sense of acceleration that I have ever felt in my life 
like a sport bike. And like I had one of the small engine ones compared to right. what you buy today. Um, but it was like it was borderline irresponsible how unbelievably fast it was. And I wasn't a yeah. speeder. Um, so like I, I wouldn't cruise around at 150 like some other psychopaths would, but the way it would accelerate was indescribable. Oh yeah. You don't need to speed to get into some serious trouble. Like the speed's not the fun part. It's the acceleration. that's fun. So, um, yeah, we did that. And, uh, I, it's, it's probably not a secret, but, uh, Scott, you and I sometimes have conversations. I am not a religious person. Um, and I, I don't know, I tend to not believe in fate or, uh, anything that is, I don't paranormal or, or lacking explanation. Sure. What I can say is I had a vivid dream while I was in graduate school um, that I had a crash on my motorcycle. Um, I could tell you exactly where I was. I could tell you the time of year. I could tell you the, the scenario. And I woke up and I was like, everything about this situation is plausible that's enough for me. And I sold it. I've, I've had those dreams. Um, it's no, nowhere near the impact of yours. I remember in high school, I don't, I don't even, I'm not trying to say that it was a premonition or anything else. Maybe it was just a reflection on like, here's, here's the situation you're putting yourself in. Maybe you should stop. Maybe, but I mean, what's, what's important is like, it, it was real enough that it almost seems like a memory. Yeah. <laughs> like that gets, well, I rode in Chicago. I rode from, um, March, which is still quite cold yes. uh, to late November after the leaves had fallen and it started raining all the time, <sighs> which is uh, riding on wet ball. leaves I, is sketchy. Uh-huh. Yes, it was actually in my dream. Um, and so, yeah, I, I sold the bike and then, um, with that money, I bought a Subaru because like the idea of, at least at that time it was, well, maybe I can like find a car that will give me some of the, the sensation and feeling that I got from the motorcycle. And in this case, it was like, I want a car that has a turbo and I want a car that accelerates like fast and fast is relative now that we've like all been in really fast cars. But at that age, it was just like, I want something that makes me feel kind of alive. Yeah. I want, um, I want to go vroom, vroom. So yeah. the, the all wheel drive motif here for at least a little while, was that because Chicago? Uh, no, actually. Um, it was because uh, when I told you that my parents and I were doing off-road stuff, you are a Michigander. Uh, you know where Silver Lake is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, growing up, I spent a lot of time at Silver Lake and I wanted a vehicle that I could take to Silver Lake. And so I bought a WRX and which, I, which generation, uh, the blob. I, I had an Oh five. It was an Oh five wagon. Oh, yes. Um, and I took it to Silver Lake and there are videos of me and my stupid car on the internet, uh, doing things that like big off-road trucks would do. And it was my stupid little car on all season tires. Perfect. That's, that's the awesomest thing I've ever heard about you. Perfect. Yeah. So, uh, after that, uh, 
when I graduated from grad school, I needed like a, a big, um, not rubber stamp, but I needed like a, an exclamation point on the, the end of my education. And so I bought the Evo. Traded in the Subaru? Uh, sold it. Yeah. Yep. So how do you go from running around dunes to doing track stuff though? Uh, another weird example of serendipity, I'll say. Um, when we moved to Ohio, so I graduated from, from Northwestern, Ashley and I moved to Ohio. Uh, I did what nerds call a postdoc. That is a interim position between being a permanent employee or a professor and being a student. Um, it's kind of the worst of all worlds because you're, you're not really full-time staff, but you're not really a student. And so you don't really get any benefits and you're expected to work a lot. Um, it sucks. It's a good way to waste an education by not getting paid much as far as I know. <laughs> well, interestingly, I got paid uh, a hell of a lot as a postdoc. Really? Uh, relative for you. to what other postdocs get paid. Um, so I had like a, I had a prestigious fellowship uh, that made it livable. Um but like if you were a postdoc at a university, it's much, much less. So um, that was okay for us at the time. And for some people, a postdoc is a position that you really, really want because it's a prerequisite to becoming a professor. Mm -hmm. In some cases, if you can't find the job you want or you can't find a job, uh, it is a mm, kind of like a contractor type position. It's a it stall. Is, it's, it's a stall position. Yeah. Uh, but you can make something of your stall period yeah. uh, you can do more things that are productive scientifically that will strengthen your resume um and so that's what i did i i postdoced in ohio and i lived in a town called xenia um and in xenia there is a drag strip and i'd never been on a drag strip in my life mm -hmm. uh, i had heard friends of friends who found out that i was like into cars i had heard that like uh, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday night. It was $20 and you could do a test and tune day. All you needed was a helmet yep. and you could go run passes on the drag strip. Um, it, you, you may not see it, but perhaps you do. Uh, certainly at that time in my life, I was not the kind of person that would just put myself out there. I didn't have friends in the area. I had just moved into town. Ashley was working late and, uh, I had nothing to do. And I think it was, it might've even been my birthday. Um, and I was just like, I could stay in and play it safe and not make an ass of myself. Or I could just go. And if I look like a doof, that's fine. Um, but maybe I'll make a friend. Um, and that singular decision, I would say, uh, put me on this path. And, that's a weird decision to make because probably at that time, nine times out of 10, I would just stay home. I was about to say, it sounds pretty uncharacteristic from your general personality. Yeah. Like I can't say for sure why I went. Um, but I can say that when I went, I met someone uh, and she, uh, she's in the car community still. Uh, that's Jillian Barraclough. Um, she runs with NASA great lakes or did for a time. And she said, Oh, I know this other guy. His name's James, uh, James Hodges. Uh, James is into Evos and like, maybe you guys will do autocross and like, uh, maybe you guys will be friends. 
And then I met James and we did autocross and like, I was okay at autocross. I know now some people who were really good, but um, that was it. And then it was actually me convincing James to do one lap. Uh, I wanted him to be part of my team and um, convinced him to come with. And I am ashamed and embarrassed now to say that I've only done it once. And I think he's done it four or five times. Yep. He's yeah. He's been in it a few more times. So was the Evo like your grown up version of your Subaru? Kind of. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, um, as a soup Evo 10. Yeah. Yeah. And it was modified when I bought it. I know that the, that's like a, a stigma in the car community. It's like, people are always like, Oh, don't ever buy a modified car. Um, in general, I don't think that that's necessarily good advice. It might be good advice. What they really mean is don't buy a poorly modified yes. car. Um, because if your interest is in making a race car, like buying a race car isn't necessarily a bad buy no. as long as it's a good race car. That, that's actually what everyone tells you you should do. <laughs> right. Don't Never build a race car. It's way easier just to buy one. So I had bought one that had been, um, I would say, lightly modified. Um, they did like all the things that Subaru and Evo owners did, right? They put an exhaust on it. Uh, they put a downpipe on it. They put an intercooler on it. They tuned it. They put an intake on, um, the car ran great. Like if I had my whole car life to do over again, I would have just bought it and driven it. But you did do that. What were your drag strip times? I did not do that. <laughs> what were your drag strip times since you went to the drag strip? Uh, like what was it doing? Launching an Evo is not easy, and I was not good at it. Okay. So, um, yeah, like after you did a bunch of drag strips and uh, a bunch of autocross launches and things like that, um, I burnt the clutch up. Yep. Actually, I think it was Paul Curley who burnt the clutch up in my Evo because he was running drag passes in my Evo. And then um, he and Adam Ulrich, who you know from GLTC, mm-hmm. Uh, they helped me swap my clutch in my garage. And that's when um, we did coilovers and we did turbos and we did all this stuff like all at once in one summer. Oh, Jesus. Um, and it was a mess, just, just a proper mess. Yep. And the decisions that I made and the things that I did, um, hell, the shops that I worked with, like all of those things I would do differently. But that's, how were you as a mechanic prior to this? Um, like I had done a turbo swap in the Subaru before. Um, I, I'd never had a garage until we lived in Ohio. Um, so I had done stuff like out in the street, which sucked. Um, but everything is relative, right? Like I thought I was decently handy before, and now I know people who are not just mechanics, but people who are good mechanics. And so I, I'm comfortable now saying like, I mean, yeah, like I could do this job, but I had, I know people who are better at it. So I'll just let them do it. Yeah. Like Emil and Aaron are some of the best mechanics that I know, like yeah. bar none. Yeah. You can't, yeah. You can't compare yourself. It's, it's, it's well, a, but it's like a steep, um, I, I get I, it. Is that I tended to work on my car, not because I enjoyed it. I don't. 
Uh, it's frustrating and difficult, even if I know exactly what task has to be done. Yep. And even if I know how to do it, the act of doing it is challenging for me. Um, and so the only reason I worked on my car was just because I couldn't afford to pay someone else. So you took a highly modified Adivo on the one lap. Yeah. Had a tough, had a good, but tough go. Yeah. All those problems were preventable and probably could have been prevented had I known what I was doing. God, that's sounds fair. That's like a life quote, right? (laughs) Right there. (laughs) Like in retrospect, had I known what I was doing, I would have made very different choices. So, um, one of my friends in Michigan, um, cautioned against me towing any kind of trailer. This is a person that had done one lap in 2013. Um, and he and his buddy scored really well in their Evo from back in the day. And, um, he was like, you don't want a trailer. You don't ever want a trailer. The reason you don't want a trailer is that trailers have wheels and you don't want any wheels. So just get a basket and put all your stuff in that basket and go, go as fast as you want uh, because you can, because you don't have any extra wheels. Sure. And that's like, I mean, that that sounds like goofy advice, but like uh, we had so many trailer problems. Just so many. And if we, if we just didn't have a trailer, that wouldn't be a problem. We lost nights of sleep more than one night of sleep because we didn't arrive because we had a trailer problem. Why do you think I got the trailer that I did? It's because of people who made poor decisions with poor trailers like yourself that helped to lay that out. It's like, do not take a cheap trailer. Don't just don't, um, bad tires, bad wheel bearings, bad, 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 bad time. Yep. Which is why we got the race trailer and God bless that thing. And whatever life it's leading now is a good trailer again. It's a damn good trailer, man. (laughs) Trailer was amazing. I know. Um, but it's also, I've never trailered in the, whatever, six, six times I've done one lap. Yep. Um, and I've talked people out of it that I've done it with. I'm like, no, if you could figure out how to shove everything in the car, your so, life will be immeasurably uh, easier. Uh, I asked James, uh, so it was originally going to be my dad who was going to co-pilot, uh, but not race. And it was going to be Ashley who would navigate and do whatever. Originally, it was intended to have three people in the car. Yep. Um, I asked James with short notice, probably only two or three weeks before the event, if he would come with. Uh, because I thought it would strengthen our competitive drive. Uh, James had a lot more experience on track. He had more autocross experience than I did across the board. And so I thought by having him on the team, we would be a more competitive entry. Um, So we had four people in the car. It was four people plus our gear in a car with a tiny trunk and the trailer. So like, but the, the RS Motors guys did it the year before with four people in an Evo. Three. Did they only have three? Okay. Three. Yeah. That's that's key. I did. We also did three people in my Accord. Um, three people in the Cadillac. Um, I've been in three people cars numerous times, and that's that's actually a, not a terrible number if you can convince somebody to sit in the back seat. 
Yeah. So, um, that's, that's what we did. I can say, um, um, we, we haven't even gotten into it, but I spent like about two years of my mental capacity and preparation for one lap that year. Uh, what I can say is after we finished, we finished well, um, tire rack is not far from where I grew up. It's where my family lives. And when we finished, we went back to Ashley's parents' house and it was like, I don't know, two o'clock after the banquet or so got home and I went upstairs and I went to sleep and I did not wake up until late the next day. Yep. It was like, uh, it was like a, a, a big mental weight had just been lifted off of me and I could finally like rest. And so you're not one of those guys who's immediately like when we do this next year. No, actually um, that's it's, I think it's an interesting segue because I haven't driven competitively in any measure since 2016. Um, and I can say that that was the first year we went to road Atlanta. Um, I don't have the stomach for that track. I just, I just don't. And, uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that, um, I thought I had a decent amount of track experience at the time. Uh, but I will admit that I did not right. Like at, that my perception was like, Oh, I'm getting good at this. Um, and now like I see people and how fast they are, whatever, like, I don't know anything. And right. what I can say is I found myself driving faster than I was comfortable in an effort to win. And I got out of the car, uh, at one of the last sessions of the weekend, this was with grid life. And I got out of the car and I was like, I'm not having fun. I don't want to do that anymore. Um, the Evo was doing like 150 or something on the way into turn 10 at road Atlanta in a car without a cage that like you could drive on the street. And I was just like, I don't like this. I don't like it one bit. And, uh, I have never been able to get back into the right headspace to drive competitively after that event. That's interesting. I was, I found myself in the same place with my Cadillac actually at uh, high plains. Um, Cause I looked down at the, the long back straight and I looked down and I was going 145 into the braking zone. And I was like, this is insane. Like I remember thinking that on the lap going, this doesn't make sense anymore. So, um, you know, like, um, at road Atlanta, um, what happens between seven and 10, they're right. turns, but they're not really turns, right. you know how, like, um, right at nine, uh, right before you start to go downhill, it's kind of blind. You can't see a whole lot. Yeah. Um, and you just, I know the roads there, but you just have to like, take it on faith that the road is there and that you're pointed in the right direction. Um, those were the spots where I was like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like it at all. <laughs> Um, and like, I can say that driving a, a car, like a fit, um, you can drive a fit as hard as you want and you'll never, you'll never fear that, uh, feel that kind of, uh, terror is maybe not the right word, but that anxiety or fear in the same way that you felt in a car that was that fast. No. And, and my response to that was I bought, uh, an EF civic. Okay. Um, because I said, I just am not going to go this fast. I'm still going to do it, but I'm going to do it at, you know, 70% of the speed. 
So, I mean, after I still had the Evo for a couple of years and I took it to like track day picnic and stuff, but, um, I didn't, I wasn't driving competitively save like the high speed autocross because for some reason I just felt comfortable at Blackhawk. I know it's a dangerous course. I know people die there. Um, but for some reason that place made me feel okay. The, well, and the top speed isn't there. That's right? true. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. lot of turns. It's a lot of braking, but especially in the high speed autocross, like it's, I don't want to say low risk, but like the, the top speed, the thing that really gets the visual senses going, it just isn't present. Yep. Yep. So, and that's uh, what I, that's what I see from a lot of time attack drivers as well. And this is absolutely not to shit on anybody. We actually talked to Nick Coors about it as well, uh, several weeks ago. Um, but the car build is largely, I don't even think largely it is what's emphasized in time attack focus for sure. And so you are encouraged to bring a car that's at the bleeding edge of the rules. And then you just have to hold on to it as best you can. Aaron um, said, and I think he said of time attack in general, and he wasn't talking shit either. um, But I'll just relay what he said. Uh, He said time attack is an interesting sport because you're a lot more like Chuck Yeager than you are Lewis Hamilton. Um, These cars are insane and uh, you are not expected as a driver to drive perfect laps because you can't. Um, uh, And so a successful run is when the lap time shows a relatively good number regardless of uh, the quality of the drive and making it back to the pits safely. Yeah. And And I I would say of probably many of our time attackers with the exception of a, a a few notable ones, um, the quality of the laps aren't very good. The times are fast. Yes. Yeah. The, you know, we, I mean, I, I use the apex pro. I know you have as well. There's always that apex score unlike in terms of how much of this lap on average that you utilize the tires to the best of their ability, Temetech would generally have a very low score. For sure. But the the uh, lap times would be very quick because the car is very capable. Yeah, and like uh, kudos to any driver who drives a fast car really fast. It's not easy. Um, What I do know, though, is that the like the lap perfection that people describe uh, as like the essence of time attack. That's not what it is. It's not at all what it is because, um, and I I don't want to like drink the, the GLTC Kool-Aid, but like when Jeremy Sensen did a two thirteen at NCM in a car that made 240 horsepower, that's a, that's driving perfection. God, so fast. (laughs) That's so fast. And the reason it's that fast is because he's done hundreds of laps in his race car like being having a time attack car and being able to put down three or four laps over a weekend while also changing an engine or a transmission all that's dumb uh the people who do that are slower than they would be if they turned the power down and just drove some more laps and that's why i think it's it's been interesting to have seen i mean certainly sunday cup is an example of that right but even within the quote-unquote 
faster, well, certainly faster classes, is there are people like Alex Moss. Uh, there are now people like um, Nick Coors, who has turned down the power level, um, who are very quick with quote-unquote underpowered cars. Sure. sure. And I will also, I want to I want to shout out Jackie specifically. Yep. I don't know if you've watched a whole lot of Jackie's videos recently. Um, they are incredible. Like the amount of corner speed that he's getting from his car is unbelievable. And corner speed comes from comfort in the car and experience. And that car's dialed in. It is properly dialed in and he does so many laps in that Supra and he is faster now today than he has ever been. I'm sure at least in part because he's able to turn so many laps in that car and know exactly what it's going to do. Yeah. Reliability is, I, I think there are, I mean, we, we could like put bullet points next to what can make a fast time attack time. Uh, car driver skill reliability and, yeah. and so chance like, or yeah. like whatever that like fourth unknown element is well and when i hear people say oh like it's time attack the cars aren't supposed to be reliable and i was like well what what planet do you live yeah. on uh, the people who are really fast um like really really fast they spend all weekend practicing yeah like formula one drivers are insane in their absolute pace, they spend a whole lot of time on track, a lot, a lot before qualifying. And in sims, working on setup, they run for what, like an an hour or more on track of continuous laps I, across the three sessions. I don't know how much track time they get. It's a ton, yep. Just so that they can do their perfect lap in qualifying, yep. And even then, sometimes they mess up. Like, are you trying to say that a person who is not that pro uh, can do a similar thing with two or three laps on track? No, that's that's silly. Let's just like let's not. That's not a thing. Yeah, I mean, I I remember when Ferris did his Road America lap, and they did an over under video with the uh, Corvette, the GTD Corvette, the IMSA. Mm-hmm. And Corvette is the, sorry, they're both Corvettes, but the IMSA Corvette significantly slower on straightaways. Obviously. But the way that that car set up the modest but well-designed arrow and driver talent wheeled the crap out of that thing. And Ferris, no, like taking nothing away from him or the car he built, the reason why he got that time is because he had like 500 more horsepower. Um, there are it is different. And I, I, I think I've said to Adam on 10 tenths and a few others that I think the entire class of time attack competitors that are at the upper echelon, um, there are plenty of them that would probably go faster if they turn the car down so that they could do some more laps. Yes. Yep. I agree. So now for grid life, you've you've stepped away from the competitive driving aspect and you have, like you said, for a while now. And you are 
it's kind of hard to define your role. You you do a lot with timing and scoring. You do a lot in the background with rules development and yeah. things like that. What would you say you do here? Um, if uh, I'm not really the race director, so to call me like um, the the Michael Massey of sorts or the the Charlie Whiting, I'm not exactly that because Renee tends to be that. True. Um, but uh, I'm often in the pits looking at cars, uh, dealing with issues, um, and um, like making sure that the the event itself is executed in a manner that's consistent with the rule book, uh, and any weird situations are resolved fairly. Okay. So, like, I don't know if that's descriptive enough, but like, um. Uh, well, it's, really- I think it's vague enough to capture, to spread the wide net to catch all the different things that you can encounter on any given weekend. So um, I, I handle driver complaints or issues or, or discussions about other drivers or unsafe behavior. Um, we, we enforce different aspects of the rules. We reclass cars. Um I do most of the points work on the back end. Uh, um, I'm an admin for the website. Um, Adam and I tend to spend the off season in great detail talking about rules and uh, making changes to any particular class and what the ramifications of those changes will be to decide if that's what we want. Um, and so the, I think the rule books are coming out in the next week or so. I don't know when this will be released, but so it, uh, I I was actually going to ask you, this is going to release the day that the rules are released. So like, I don't, I don't need to necessarily, I think hear your expert opinion or anything like that, but I will ask like, what are you excited about for the new time attack rules that are coming out? Um, on the time attack side, uh, we are, uh, the, the track mod class is going to morph a little bit. Okay. Um, we're going to rein in some of the crazy arrow, um, because, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Ferris kind of exposed a, I don't want to say a flaw, but like a, a weird situation with our rule book where, uh, the same car could in principle run in both classes, Old, uh, unlimited and so, track mod. Yeah, uh, with the swap of tires and maybe an adjustment here or there. Um, And that really wasn't the intent. Um, And so I think what we're going to do for that class is rein in the arrow quite a lot um, and make it a class where modern supercars, which currently don't fit very well, um, won't be such an underdog in this class given the modifications that have been allowed. So like if you compare Ferris's car to even like a McLaren 720, um, yeah, the McLaren 720 is a capable car, but it's, it's outmatched by a lot compared to Ferris's car. Yeah. I mean, when, when you've got a diffuser and a dual element and a massive, um, 3d splitter up front with CFD, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, it's McLaren's very good at what it does. 
and I've ridden with Andy. The the seven twenty is very cool. Yes. It is properly cool. It still makes the weirdest sound, especially when I'm you're outside the car and you hear it. Oh yeah, by. Uh, Andy's car sounds like it's got whistle tips. You guys remember whistle tips? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Go woo woo. The whistle oh. go woo woo. <laughs> Uh, no, it, it really does. Um, that car though is, is unique and it's cool and it's special and it's very fast. Um, and, but like all of the cars in that category, uh, let's say like the modern supercar class, they are outgunned in a modified class. And so, sure. um, the class is going to turn down some of the crazy modifications that you can do, uh, to hopefully create a little more parody. Um, but also to better reflect the cars that show up to our events. So the number of crazy wild track mod cars that exist in the country just aren't that many. No, no, it's really become. And, and again, I think Ferris seemed to kind of expose that as like, if you're going to build a track mod, if you're going to be unlimited, be unlimited. Exactly. You're, you're, you're going straight from street mod to unlimited. You're not gonna, you're not going to stop over in track mod. Um, especially when the tire you would choose to run track mod is probably the same tire that you would run if you ran street mod. Yeah. So, um, that'll be a change. I think there's going to be a few allowances for more cars into Sunday cup. Uh, I think, Hmm. um, but with like some more GLT side, more GLTC style percentages being applied to engines of certain displacements. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and Street mod, I don't think is going to change much. I think that's a, I think it's one of our strongest classes. Yeah. And in street class, uh, something that we intend to do is um, for the last several years, it has been turbos allowed 41 pounds per minute plus uh, a few allowed legacy OEM type turbos yep. that come with modified versions of Evos or whatever. S, S turbos, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we're going to simplify that now to just say 41 pounds a minute. Uh, if you're using an OEM turbo or not, it's the burden of the competitor to prove that that turbo is legal. And so I would speculate to say that some of those legacy allowed turbos will probably no longer be allowed. Okay. But, and then, uh, um, Street GT still still a thing. Continue on. Uh, we will require in both street and street GT that no aftermarket ECUs are allowed. Um, I don't think that would generally apply to um, street GT because I don't think anyone's going to do that swap. But no. um, with Cobb tuning and and other aftermarket, let's call them chip makers. I don't know what the, what tuners. Um, moving more toward being compliant with um, uh, emissions requirements. Uh, Requiring no aftermarket ECUs will hopefully also limit the amount that cars are modified in street class uh, to hopefully make some of those cars feel a little bit more within reach for a customer or a driver that's not in it yet. If you look at some of the fastest cars in street, they feel unobtainial like an unobtainium type like how is it possible to do that i don't even know where to start yeah they're very quick for the category and so like i'm not necessarily um in the camp that we're we're picking winners We're, we're absolutely not picking winners but like a car that i would like to see uh as capable of being competitive 
um, would be like a type R, not like a wild modified type R, but in the street class, I'd like to see a person who drives a type R really well to be a contender for the podium. And I think we saw that with Patrick Darty uh, this year at AMP. He drove his car from Lexington, Kentucky on his Hankook RS4s. Yes. And he didn't work on the car while he was there. He podiumed at AMP in street class, and then he drove home on Hankook RS4s. And that, to me, yeah. that's a great weekend. I mean, that, and that's kind of all of our ethos, you know, and how we... uh we may have just lost Abe. But, oh, I'm still here. Okay. Uh, but in, my, like, in uh, all of our ethos of like driving the car to and from events is inherently cooler than not. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, like you're, you're not doing it for, for credibility or anything, but it does make life simpler. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, Becky and I kind of necessarily, you know, we had to go with the tow vehicle and trailer option. Um, largely because of my son, but also the fact that we had several instances where we couldn't get home. Now that's in a wheel to wheel environment, which, you know, carries some greater inherent risks with it. But yeah, when you're in a street class, it, it feels like you should drive your car like on the street. Well, and I don't want to say that it's necessarily a requirement, but I was, um, if Adam Nielsen listens to this podcast, he'll probably uh, be mad that I say this in terms of driver progression, the way I see some drivers going is you have this street car and it might be modified because you're into cars and you haven't been on the track before. And so you've got this modified car Mm. um, and then you start doing track days in this same car. And then you you get pretty good at it. You want to start like driving a little bit more competitively. Uh, well, how do you compete with your street car competitively? Well, I mean, you can time attack with it. Um, and so now you've got this modified car that you're time attacking and doing whatever. Um, what I will say, though, is that for probably the super majority of people that are interested in transitioning from time attack to GLTC or any wheel-to-wheel class, whether it be grid life or not, almost certainly there will be a reset of what car do I use to compete? Because in time attack, I think largely people drive the same street car that they've always had. Mm-hmm. And when you start in wheel-to-wheel, you're, you, you question often, uh, well, what car should I start with? Do I have to do all this over again? Yeah, I've I've heard you talk about this before of actually taking the step back and like picking the quote unquote right or best chassis for you, depending on where you want to end up with it. Yeah, and so um, I, maybe with the exception of Club TR, which was intentional in its uh, writing of rules, a Club TR car could. Uh, find a transition into GLTC reasonably easily, actually. Right. And so that might be the thing that if you really, really like time attacking club TR uh, is, is the barrier to wheel to wheel easier. If you have a car that's compliant for this class, I hope so. So you're doing this stuff with grid life. 
you're happy with your job and you are well, before you finish this question, Scott. Oh, Jesus. You're doing this you, you're doing this stuff with grid life. You're not so you're not currently driving. You do a shit ton of hours and effort with grid life. And I think there's a there is a why. Like what Why do you do this? What do you get out of this? What is your motivation? Why are you still a dirtbag hanging out with track dirtbags? Well, this is a good question. And it's a good question. uh, The same could be asked of either of you. Uh, Why do you, why do you race? Why do you, why do you race with grid life? This is, uh, I I don't want to say it's a profound question, but I think it's relevant. Um, well, you do it because the people that you are around, you enjoy their company. And uh, for me, the thought of not doing it is so unattractive that I'll just keep doing it. Right? Like, can you, I mean, if if the people that you see 10 times a year are your family, um, could you imagine just stopping that sounds yeah, horrible. That's, it, no, you, that's why I do one lap because I can't not do one lap. Yeah, and we've and we've talked about it. It you do it until you have a compelling other thing. Like you can't just like not do grid life. You have to be. You have to have a direction. You're like, okay, I'm now go. I'm now doing this because it is important to me or something. Like you have to have a yes. You can't just say, no, I'm just not going to do grid life. You have oh, to have another it's, thing. It's a massive commitment and it's a time sink and it's, it's hard. Um, for me, I'm not racing. So like right. some of the, the financial constraint goes away because I, I'm not prepping a race car, but like, and I just, you sold an RV, which yeah, wasn't worth to drive. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, the with with the price of diesel being what it was, it was very difficult to own this year. Um, but but I can say like uh, there are a uh, hundred people when I go to the track who, and I, I don't want to say that this is like validating, but there are there are people just genuinely excited to like hang out with me, or to hang out with Scott Robertson or Seth or anyone else. Um, because we haven't seen you in a bit and we're just, we're, we're glad you're okay. And we're glad you're here. Yep. And, um, you know, those kind of support structures in your life are hard to find. Yes. Yeah. Goddamn. I, I don't, I don't even want to answer another question. I feel like that's a, you think that's a podcast. That's a pretty good summary, man. Like I, I don't know. That gives me the warm fuzzy. Yeah, that was good. That was good. What um, so Grid Life is going to be releasing the rules today, the day that this releases, and the following day, which will be tomorrow, they're going to be doing a Q and A. Um, I think Chris and Adam are doing the Q and A on Twitch. Is what I, I had think. heard that. Um, I heard that through our Grid Life uh, Slack, but yep. um, I get such poor cell reception at work that I usually get uh, the entirety of the day's messages all at once when I leave the building. <laughs> that would be overwhelming depending on the day. Indeed. Yeah. I have most of my group chats on mute because I like, it is impossible 
to keep up. Yep. It just can't be done. Are you excited? And and I feel like you'll give me a realistic answer here. This is why I'm asking such a basic question. Are you excited about the future of Grid Lifetime Attack? Um, yes, I am. Uh, I, there are some run of show changes that are planned for our big time attack events. I've heard whispers. And, uh, my biggest frustration with time attack in general is that to spectate time attack, uh, it makes no difference if you are in person or if you're sitting on your computer at your house. Because the experience is the same. You spectate time attack by having race hero open on your phone. When a car rolls past the start line, you check the app. Yes. Um, like I can appreciate the cars going fast, but as a spectator sport, that sucks. Yep. Um, now what I can say is time attack and, and by association qualifying in wheel to wheel is a spectacularly intense driving event. Yep. It is everything that you have. Um, now, how do you how do you make the event run in such a way um, that the spectator experience is similar to the driving experience? Yeah, yeah, and they've done the. Um... Oh, what was the lead follow that they did for a um, couple of uh, seasons? Those were called bracket battles. Bracket battles. Those and were those were cool. They're badass. Adam and I, uh, Adam, Chris, and I really worked on that in like late 2017. As a uh, Chris and Adam, or Chris, I think had this kind of like toge idea, and Adam and I sat down and like wrote the both like the run of show and like, here are the rules as a competitor that you have to follow. Here's how the event works. And uh, I had just uh, spent some time going to the drag strip with uh, that. Actually that same Michigan friend of mine who, who commented about trailer wheels. He was a compre a really, really competitive uh, Evo drag racer with a series called import face off. And so I had gone to a couple of events to just hang out. Uh, while he would compete over the weekend. And the takeaways from going to the drag strip were uh, uh, a few that I thought were really interesting. And that is the fastest car of the weekend, the car that won uh, was not necessarily the car that had the fastest time. It was the car that had the fastest time and one heads up over and over and over. Yep. And if a car had a DNF or just lost, they were out. And so there was something really cool about that where it's like, okay, well, uh, I want to make sure that the car who wins is the one that's on the track, like for people to see what I hated was the idea that a car could run a fast lap on a Friday, yep. uh, break on Friday morning and then never go on track again. Oh, and people started showing up to spectate on Saturday, Yep, which happened at <laughs> many events. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I also, uh, I, I liked the challenge of, of being heads up and also, uh, like having the stress and like pressure to, um, this is your moment. You have to, you have to do it right now. 
And something else that was cool about brackets that I still think is cool is as a spectator, there is a definitive winner and there's a loser. And when you are watching, you don't necessarily have to have your phone out to know who won. Right. You just get to watch. Yep. Visual. uh, For me, those elements made brackets a lot of fun. Um, There are downsides. Uh, One is people say, well, that's not traditional time attack. Uh, another downside is in terms of run of show, it takes a lot of track time in minutes, uh, to accommodate, uh, very large bracket fields. And for the years that we did them, we tended to be as inclusive as possible rather than, uh, only allowing the top cars to run. Sure. And so as a consequence, it just took a lot of hours on track. Yep. That said, you know, can we find a compromise, uh, for 2023 that will bring some of that uh, uh, excitement and pressure and, uh, focus to drivers. Yes, I think so. Kyle's been working on it, uh, in combination with the stream team. And we think we have something that strikes a good balance between a conventional time attack, which, uh, drivers or customers that the, the customers are paying for and something that is fun to watch on the stream. It's, you know, it's it's interesting to me kind of, you know, knowing what you've been working on and what you're currently working on and, you know, kind of honing, refining, making things better and stuff like that. And and I think the uh, the phrase you used early was hungry and that even though you're not driving competitively, that you're still trying to refine things and you're trying to be the best time attack director that you can be. Um, And I would say that, you know, I mean, you guys know Adam very well. Adam has um, kind of a character flaw that he hates everything that he does. Um, He and I uh, sort of have some things in common. I don't have that, that same kind of uh, self-deprecating personality necessarily, but uh, when I leave an event, even if I'm exhausted, uh, Unless Adam says, don't call me, um, my, uh, um, first, like my, the thing that I must do is I'll call Adam on Monday and talk about all the things that we should do differently so that it can be better next time. So you mentioned the Enneagram early on, I think maybe before we recorded, do you know, have you done Enneagram work? Um, I know that from like, um, from a disc perspective, I am, um, I'm like extreme D. Okay. Just like as a personality type, I, I don't know. That's, that's just me, but like other personality, um, characteristics, uh, I had to do one for, for a mentor. And this was one that I don't think very many people do. It was called true colors and it, um, yep. I, I've done a true colors and my true colors assessment said that I was both like, um, uh, deeply analytical and methodical, mm-hmm. uh, which in this case in the true colors assessment is green. Um, but I also presented a different character trait that is, uh, less typical for like scientists and engineers, which was orange, which was like action forward, um, 
like a, a driver in terms of change and uh, decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, so like as a personality type, I would say it's kind of both. Yeah. I think in the Enneagram, it'd be interesting. Um, I, I, I got Adam, the, um, one of the definitive Enneagram books. Uh, I don't think he finished it. So you can probably steal it if you're ever interested. Um, but I would guess that you're either a type one, which is, uh, known as the reformer. Um, constantly like looking to make things better. Like, you know, what can we do differently? Um, can be critical, but critical in a very creative, positive way or a type five, which is called the, uh, the thinker, which is like this very, like 2000 miles away, like looking at the big picture and well, like I do know that. Adam and Chris are very similar in uh, some of their personality traits. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both uh, have a, a like a guiding hand, I guess, uh, and their guiding hand is just how something feels. Sure. And uh, yeah. I don't drive that way ever. Yes. <laughs> yep. Uh, I don't like subjectivity. Uh, so often the way our working relationship works is they might have an idea for uh, how something should uh, not necessarily how it should be implemented, but like what the takeaway should be of sorts. And my responsibility is uh, in many cases figuring out, okay, well, how do you take that abstract feeling and convert it into something that is executable. Sure. That's that's absolutely something that I do in my job. Yeah. So uh, as a specific example, earlier this year, and you, you GLTC raced, uh, earlier this year, we needed a more reliable way to submit um, uh, driver comp forms. Mm-hmm. And uh, we needed a way to make sure that they were authentic and whatever else. And, uh, this is not airing, uh, dirty laundry or inside baseball or whatever. Uh, I think Adam was just like, yeah, just handle it. Like, I don't care about that. Just uh, give us a way that works. And I was like, well, Google forms can do this and it's terrific. Plus it's authenticated because people will sign into their email account, uh, so that the, the cop forms that come are true and associated with the person. Um, well, I like built the form. I tested it. Everything worked perfectly. Like it all went into the Google drive exactly how I wanted it to. And I showed it to Adam and Adam was like, I don't like that. And I was like, well, why not? <laughs> and he was like, I don't want to force people to have a Gmail account. And Adam and I sort of, I like, I was yep. uh, annoyed by this because I had spent some time in preparation to do this and the solution worked perfectly. Yep. And I was like, Adam, uh, feels like the a sanction- very Adam thing. You're the sanctioning body. You make them do all kinds of things. This is just another thing that you're asking them to do in order to race. And it's, it's the same as requiring a certain type of seatbelt or, a you know, a certain type of helmet or, uh, how their car is allowed to operate or any, any number of things that are prerequisites to entry. True. But, but not email, but that was a bridge too far. <laughs> yep. I get it. And, 
I can't say that I understood it. I still don't understand it. Um, but what I did do is come up with a different solution that seemed to work. Okay. Yeah. Um, and in this case, uh, we didn't use the Gmail solution cause he didn't like the way it felt. Yep. And I, I suppose it's the same for people, uh, like choosing to not communicate with Facebook messenger and, and True. how that's, uh, we, we as grid life, um, have unofficial chats with drivers for an event through Facebook message, but like, uh, not everyone has messenger and it's a nuisance when they don't, but like, we're not going to make people have Google messenger or Facebook messenger. Right. So just community's hard. Like try to, <laughs> it's, it, it's one thing to like create a culture and a group and stuff like that. And I think, and I think much like you, I think what's, what interests me and like what makes it, almost very creative to me is like, how do you take that and make it real? Like, how yeah. do you take this, this community and how do you define it? How do you put it on paper? How do you make uh, structures that help it not harm it, help sure. it move forward? And, and um, I mean, if, if this person were here, I would, I would say it to them directly. Um, I'm sure that you can appreciate that, uh, Chris Stewart and I are completely different people. Yep. Um, I am not very good at conversing with Chris because his brain and my brain work differently. Sure. And what I do know is Adam is really skilled at talking with Chris and I'm decently skilled at talking with Adam. And so like, if there are things that happen among the three of us, it probably always includes the three of us. Sure. Um, because Chris can absolutely do things that I can't do. He has talents that are well beyond my comprehension in some areas. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say in other areas, uh, like the minutia and thinking about the hypotheticals and the what ifs and like, how are we going to respond to this consistently and uniformly? Those are things where I think I add value to the group. Yeah. I mean, you've got to have different, not only different skill sets, but like you all have to want the same thing, which I think in this case is for good life to grow and develop and to continue to, flourish and hopefully flourish in new and good ways but you have to be able to have different skill sets almost different worldviews, um and kind of a different passion of like what like gets you out of bed yeah where um so where can people i don't know find you look at stuff you do um where can people find you well, I, I don't want to say that I'm an unsung hero, but because uh, I'm absolutely not. Um, I'm at nearly every Gridlife event. And with the exception of a photograph from Rob Wilkinson or Chris Sullivan, you probably never know. Yes. I'm nearly invisible at the event. Hard, and hard to find. In, in some respects, that's on purpose because... Uh, the freedom to move around is what helps me do my job. Uh, and if I get caught up in things, it inhibits my ability to do that. Sure. Um, 
Sometimes I'm on the broadcast, uh, though I actively try to not be, because again, I don't mind doing it. It just uh, it it precludes my ability to do my other jobs. Um, I host with Adam the Slip Angle podcast, um, which we didn't talk about how I ended up in that at all. Uh, save it for another one, I suppose. Yeah. But Adam and I do the Slip Angle podcast. If you're listening to this show, you probably already listened to Slip Angle. So hi, everyone. Probably. Um, and I don't know, like I have a personal Instagram. I, I don't really post anything. I'm not on Facebook much. Good for um, you. So like, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. You can you can find me on LinkedIn. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> find find him on the slack if you uh if you can find the the one that happens to have be, you on it it'd be uh, hard i will say that uh the coolest picture that exists of me that will likely ever exist of me is uh from 20 19 road america mm -hmm. uh the drivers did something very kind for adam and i and they 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 just had a really nice thank you moment and they gave us a gift each of us i remember that how much work that we did for grid life and uh in the box of my gift was a like a blue ice smirnoff ice yes uh, and so I got iced and that was funny. Um, but Chris Sullivan took a photograph of me chugging an ice. Uh, I don't think that I will ever look cooler than I looked in that picture. <laughs> I think that needs to be the thumbnail for this, uh, this episode. So yeah, you're, you're going to have to send me that photo. Um, I mean that I, I don't speak like of myself in that way very much. I say I look fucking cool. That's as cool as it gets. Well, we are at Track Walking Podcast uh, on the two major platforms, Track Walking Chats on Facebook. And um, if you're listening to this, you may have already heard the rules or about to hear rules, so stay tuned. Uh, I'm sure that will be an event and whatnot. Um, but yeah, we'll be back uh, next week with, you know, more things. For tonight, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. I'm Abe. We'll talk to you next week.